Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor, U.S., I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs. It's Thursday, the 12th of May. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. This week, the Philippines went to the polls. Who is the likely next president and what does it mean? Meanwhile, both Russia and Ukraine observed Victory Day on the 9th of May. Russia has called on the West to engage in honest dialogue, to seek sensible, compromising solutions, and to take each other's interests into account. All was in vain. The NATO countries do not want to hear us. We discuss their competing narratives and the latest on Russia's war. And then stay tuned for a very special U.S. Gus. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Okay, well, as teased at the top there, we have something a little different for you for our You Ask Us today. But before we get to that, Katie, the Philippines, they had an election. Why don't you tell us a bit about the political context, first of all, in which this election took place? Yeah, so the the Philippines currently has, I think, what we could diplomatically describe as a a populist authoritarian uh, strongman style leader in Rodrigo Duterte, who has presided over um, quite a significant democratic decline, according to rankings by Freedom House, who has presided over what he describes as a war on drugs, but what human rights organizations describe as a a campaign of extrajudicial killings. Um, He is term limited under the uh, Philippines constitution, can only serve one six-year term in power. There was some speculation that perhaps he would try to stay on in some way. Um, He hasn't done that. He is standing down and it looks like the person who will replace him is another man very much in that same populist authoritarian mode in Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr., If that name, certainly the Ferdinand Marcus part of it, sounds familiar, that's because he is the the son of the late Philippine dictator, Ferdinand Marcos, uh, who ruled the country for uh, 21 years until he was overthrown by uh, popular protests in 1986. He ruled with martial law. Thousands of people were killed. At least 10,000 people, by reliable estimates, are, are thought to have been imprisoned. In short, it was it was repressive, brutal, and corrupt rule. He is accused of, of plundering some $10 billion worth of the country's assets during that era. 
But his family has been campaigning to brush, I think it's probably the, the, the right term, the family's reputation since then, and to get back into power. If the results are confirmed, and it looks like at the time of this recording, I, th- I think we'll, we'll call him Bong Bong Marcos um, is the term he, he goes by, um, or Marcos Jr., has 58.9% of the popular vote, or twice as much as his nearest campaigner. Once those results are, are confirmed, as expected at the end of this month, um, he will be the Philippines' next president. The Marcos dynasty will return to power. And there are real concerns about the direction that the country will, will now move under his leadership. And I think it's also worth saying that Duterte's daughter, uh, Sara Duterte Carpio, is currently in line to be the vice president. Um, it is a, a separate election, uh, but she is polling very heavily a- ahead of her opponent. Uh, so it looks like Marcos Jr. will be the president and Duterte's daughter uh, will be vice president. So we will now see these two political dynasties in power in the Philippines. Right. So I think some people might, who who sort of are following the Philippines might think, oh, Duterte is gone. That's good because his rule was characterized by such, you know, repression of, of the press and by this, his, his violent campaign against drugs and alleged drug users and so on and so forth. But actually it sounds like they are heading perhaps further into autocracy, not away from it. It's worth understanding a little bit about the the information environment in which this election has taken place, and particularly the role social media has played. You know, th- this was something that was really critical in in Duterte's own election back in two thousand and sixteen. He ran this campaign, uh, which will sound familiar to listeners in in other countries too, campaigning against what he presented as a you know a liberal elite that didn't understand the concerns of working class and, and poorer parts of the population. Um, he campaign for you know his version of law and order which which has meant this very violent very bloody war on drugs as he calls it but it's essentially his argument was this system is not working for you know a vast amount of the of the Filipino population uh, where there is huge problems with with economic in- inequality with great levels of poverty his campaign was essentially you know you, you need a strong man who's going to shake up the system do better for the people, improve the economy. And, you know, Marcos is is following in, in much those same footsteps, except that he is now also appealing to his his own family's heritage. And through these social media channels, he ducked the presidential debates. He has provided very few details of how he actually plans to rule. But what he did do was really flood social media with videos about his his family, really sowing this idea that instead of the corrupt, repressive dictator his father actually was, that the previous Marcos era was actually this golden era of stability, of economic development, and that that's what he will deliver if you return another Marcos to power. I mean, that's not what happened. His father led the Philippines into the, the most serious recession in its history. But that message that he's really been pushing now for for months and and really for years does seem to have been successful. There was very high turnout. It looks like he has secured an overwhelming percentage of popular votes. You know, there is support for for seeing this man return to the presidential palace, you know, despite everything that that his father did to that country. And, and, you know, really not long ago, he was overthrown in 1986, uh, 36 years ago. So I, I think this is something we've seen 
in, in numerous countries around the world that you can, on the one hand, have genuine popular support that's reflected through democratic elections, and on the other hand, have authoritarian leanings or just impulses, and also hollow out the institutions that, that keep the democracy that elected you as legitimate. You've been talking about what this means for domestic policy and, and sort of the domestic political context. What do you think this will mean for for Filipino foreign policy? Well, the really critical issue is going to be how Marcos approaches China. The context of this is that you know Duterte campaigned on a tough message against China. So the broader context, as I'm sure many listeners will know, is that the Philippines is engaged in this territorial dispute with China over um, the, the South China Sea. The Philippines took China to an international tribunal and, and won a victory there in, in 2016. Duterte campaigned for office, saying that he was going to take a, a very hard line on, on China. In fact, one stage, and he now says this was a joke, um, he says he would ride a jet ski um, out into the South China Sea to personally defend the islands the Philippines claims from China. But as soon as he got into office, he really changed his tune. Um, he visited Beijing early on. He flirted with the idea that he was realigning the Philippines with China. He threatened to, to scrap what's called the VFA, the Visiting Forces Agreement, with the United States that allows US personnel to use Philippines naval bases in the hope uh, of attracting a, a huge amount of, of Chinese investment. In fact, he was not very successful. Um, he did not have a great deal to, to show for those overtures to China. But it's thought that Marcos will repeat those overtures. Certainly during the run-up to this campaign, he has been seen meeting with China's ambassador to the Philippines. They have talked about improving relations between Manila and Beijing. And I think, you know, China will welcome his, his election. He is another strongman-style ruler, or, or, or seeks to be, who they will think that they can do business with him. In, in a best case, perhaps it could shift the balance in the region, you know, Duterte threatened the alliance with with the United States. Uh, perhaps Marcos will do the same, although you know polls suggest that would be quite unpopular domestically. But it also just really complicates this narrative that that the United States and its Western partners have been have been trying to push. You know, when you, when you try to divide the world into this clean contest between democracy and autocracy, the Philippines is not going to fit neatly into that box. It is an important regional ally for, for the United States, but it looks like it's going to be another six years of populist authoritarian style rule, albeit democratically um, elected and validated at the ballot box. I think this is an incredibly important point. The Philippines is already one of the countries that comes up when people talk about, critically talk about Joe Biden's democracy versus autocracy framing. And, and we should expect more of that. Um, and, and, for, and for good reason, as Katie says. Politics in the Philippines, the presidency in the Philippines will be one that we continue to watch. But right now we are turning to different presidents, namely Vladimir Putin and Volodymyr Zelensky. Katie, just set the scene, the, the victory day scene for us in these two countries. 9th of May um, is what is uh, celebrated in, in Russia as, as Victory Day, the anniversary of the um, surrender of Nazi Germany in the Second World War. Um, many European countries celebrate it on, on May the 8th, um, but because of the difference in, in time zones, it was the early hours of, of May 9th um, when victory was declared in the Soviet Union. So that is the day that is celebrated there as Victory Day. I have written extensively about this over the last couple of weeks on our website about how the, how the fortunes of the wartime history have waxed and waned over the decades since the end of the war and how successive 
leaders ha- have firstly tried to, to play down commemoration of the war, ramped it back up in, in, in the 60s, and, and then how Putin really seized on the memory of the war when he came to power at, at the turn of the millennium and has really elevated Victory Day now to the country's most important secular holiday. It, it's uh, really the, the biggest day of the political calendar for Vladimir Putin. It's an event that he uses to put himself front and center of the wartime commemoration. And, you know, it is nominally about the past, but really it, you know, in its current manifestation, it's, it's about Putin um, and the, the claims he makes to his domestic population about why he needs to be in power, the enemies he claims they're now facing and the great battles he claims they need to fight. It was expected that he would use this anniversary to signal which way he was planning to go on Ukraine. Early on, it was anticipated that perhaps he would try to to achieve something that could look like a victory by Victory Day. You know, th- there were reports early early on that Russian troops uh, near Kiev had dress uniforms with them that they were preparing for some sort of triumphant parade, possibly um, on Victory Day. If if as was expected back then, they secured this this quick and easy victory. Because that hasn't happened, there was growing speculation that you know. There was a chance he would declare victory in the in the south east, celebrate what what ground he currently controls, and regroup. But there was equally, and I think probably there was more support for the idea that he would use this occasion to declare a full scale mobilization and to and to call this a war. Right now, he says it's still a, a special military operation that Russian forces are, are carrying out in Ukraine, you know, there was a good chance that he would use Victory Day to, to say, we are now at war. So in the event, he didn't do either of those things. It was a very, really very ordinary speech by his standards, where he did everything he normally does. You know, he, he talked about the glorious victory that the Soviet Union won in, in 1945. He claimed they're, they're fighting these, these contemporary enemies. He insists that Nazis have come to power in Ukraine, that they pose a, a great threat to Russia. He claims falsely that they were in the process of acquiring nuclear weapons backed by the United States and NATO. And therefore, Russia was left with no choice but to take action. He described their unprovoked war of aggression as it really is there as a preemptive strike and said it was the only decision that was possible. But really, he you know he used this this anniversary and this annual occasion to insist that once again Russia is on the side of right. Once again, Russia is the country that is saving the world from from Nazism in its in its current manifestation, as, as he insists it is now the case. But I think really you know that the, the major point to draw out from this is that he isn't backing down. Um, he certainly isn't declaring victory and going home. Nor is he pulling the lever. To be fair, to to say this is now an, an all out war and and um, taking the political risk of, of a mass mobilization. But it really looks now that he is digging in for a long, very violent conflict still to come. There's no sense that he's backing down from his overall aims. So I think what I took away from, from this speech on, on Victory Day is that, you know, Putin is digging in. I think we're seeing some tactical shifts on the ground. I think, you know, the focus in the near term is going to be on the on the south and the east and the, and the, the Donbass region. But I, I think there's no reason to suspect, and particularly having having listened to his, his speech on, on May 9th, I, I don't think there is any reason to suspect that he has dropped his, his overall aim of, of subjugating Ukraine and, and bringing it under under his control. Katie, I completely agree with that. 
there were three things that jumped out to me. The first was Zelensky's speech in which he said, soon there will be two victory days that we celebrate or observe in Ukraine, which was very rhetorically powerful, but also to me just really drove home. If this war was meant to bring Ukraine further into Russia's orbit, it has so failed on so many different levels. You know, if, if Russia saw itself as the keeper of this history and this history of this region, Ukraine is very much contesting that now. The second thing, and I know that we speak about historical memory and memory politics on this podcast, but um, the unfortunate thing, I think, about the fact that we're basically in a space where two different, and I don't mean to draw an equivalence between the two countries at all, but basically each is saying to the other, no, you're like, you're the bad guy. We're, we're defeating the evil just like we defeated the evil in World War II. Obviously, if you have listened to this podcast, you understand that I think that is a much more sympathetic argument coming from the Ukrainians. But either way, um, I think we do ourselves, we as in like citizens of the world, do ourselves a disservice when we only draw the analogy and don't don't look at the actual history. Because the reality is that while the Soviet Union stood up to Nazi Germany, they there was also the secret pact that divided up. Uh, Eastern Europe, and there were also gulags at the same time, and they were, you know, defeating fascism. And the reality is that while many Ukrainians did fight bravely, there were also Ukrainians who collaborated with the Nazis. And that gets lost when we just have narratives of victory as opposed to a more nuanced remembrance. And I understand that it's wartime. I guess what I'm saying is, to me, this is another loss that that this war is forcing. And then finally, I would just say that I agree with Katie that I think that, you know, many were looking to May 9th as sort of a turning point of some kind in this war. Um, and it, it wasn't really. And uh, it, I think we should expect the war to continue on and on at this point. Yeah, I think it's really interesting and I think important to see Zelensky contesting Putin's version of history. As you say, I mean, there is an attempt on, you know, I, I don't want to use the words both sides, but in, you know, in both Putin's language and Zelensky's language to say, you know, you, you are the, you are the modern day Nazis. We are on the side of, of good. You know, I, I think in, in Zelensky's case, you know, that argument is, is persuasive. And I think he did a really effective job of pushing back on Putin's version of history, firstly, but also, you know, this was an attempt to, to talk to his own citizens and to his own frontline troops and to supporters of Ukraine around the world to, to reclaim that history, but also to say, you know, look, we, we have repelled every invading army that has come into our country before. You know, he, he talked about, you know, every occupier treads on the same rake. He talked about the the Nazis, the, the hordes that, that came before them, and he and he you know, said sooner or later, the lesson of all of these conflicts is that we win because this is our land and we will do so in this war also. And I think, you know, it was a powerful message and and listening to the two speeches back to back, I was really struck that, you know, all Putin is really able to offer now is this vision of, of endless war, endless fights against these enemies that he says are, are gathering on Russia's border. You know, that's the future. Under, under Putin is greater and greater repression and this never-ending battle against their enemies. What Zelensky is offering is a vision of an actual victory of exactly. a future post-war and of, and of celebrating a, a new victory day. So, you know, it, it was a tremendously powerful speech. And I think it's important that he is contesting this history now with Putin, you know, alongside the actual war on the ground, also fighting this, the war for history. 
I think that your point that one of these two visions ends in an actual victory and one just cannot end in a victory. Right. It just ends in more, more war, more oppression, more violence is a really important one. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From The New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said, on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwa screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads. Published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We're moving now to lighter fare because it is time for a section that we like to call. We ask our producer Adrian. That's right. Instead, of, <laughs> <laughs> instead of our traditional, you ask us. So. Basically, we have a somewhat unique question this week. Some of you wanted to know how Europe is reconciling Eurovision, which for anyone who is somehow not aware is the 
Continental Song Contest happening now in Turin. You know, how to reconcile that with all of the war and the turmoil and the violence currently taking place on the continent. And as it happens, our producer, Adrian Bradley, is currently in Turin for Eurovision. So we are going to turn this over to him. Adrian. Hello. Yeah, just to set the scene a little bit, I'm sitting in a hotel lobby looking out over the Alps, just on the edge of Turin. Um, It's a really beautiful city. If you've never been to Turin, I would recommend it. It's a really interesting contest this year because the huge elephant in the room is Russia's war on Ukraine. When the war started, first the EBU said it wasn't going to get involved in politics. And after a lot of pressure from its members, particularly from uh, the Scandinavian members like Sweden and Norway and Finland, it decided to expel Russia and Belarus from Eurovision. And so they were no longer allowed to take part. Since then, especially alongside Ukraine taking part, the suggestion is that they are the runaway favourites to actually win Eurovision. And what's really interesting, having moved on from that initial we don't get involved in politics stance, is quite how political this Eurovision actually has been, which in a way is a is a big surprise for the event that normally tries to stay out of it. The message very much is talking about bringing a message of peace, bringing a message of European unity through music. This was reiterated to me when I spoke to the mayor of Turin, Stefano Larosso, who told me why they were so keen to hold this tournament and what was so important about holding it now. Yes, the opportunity is double because we have the first that is to promote music and the European level, especially in a moment that is so difficult for our continent. And with the war in Ukraine and so the music meaning is very, very important in terms of reunification just around what are the values that are founding the Europe. But more important is the fact that this kind of event involve all the city after the COVID-19 pandemic event that uh, store the people inside the households. And so we have a lot of young people that want to go outside to go back to the previous life. That is uh, the really important meaning of the event for the city. So you heard from there that he actively referenced the war in Ukraine as one of the reasons for bringing Europe together. We also had the first semi-final last night as we were recording. We were recording on a Wednesday and Latvia, one of Ukraine's neighbours and a very good friend of Ukraine during this conflict, their act had Ukrainian flags all throughout their staging. There are LCD screens on the floor and the colours that were just flashing through during their act were entirely Ukraine's blue and yellow. In fact, during the green room, they were waving the flag of Ukraine more than they were waving the flag of Latvia. And as it happened, they didn't make it through to the final and Ukraine very much did. Now, all these messages make it a very strange Eurovision because it feels like everybody knows who's going to win. And what will it mean when Ukraine win? What will it mean for them hosting it? But how will that that emotion of seeing points coming from across Europe for Ukraine, it could be a really big moment on Saturday night. And and let's not forget, this is the most watched entertainment show in the world. About a billion people will be watching Eurovision globally in some form on Saturday night. So it will be noticed. Adrian, can I ask, it's obviously you know, an extraordinary contest this year, but what, what does it feel like there on the ground? Because I guess I'm wondering, what is the balance between 
you know, the, the real and awful news that that's coming out of Ukraine. And then what really seems like almost like a, you know, joyful, you know, euphoric efforts to to lift up and, and support Ukraine and, and Ukrainians there. What what is the experience of being there like during this war? I think the atmosphere here where there is kind of reference to Ukraine of a war is very much one of celebration. I don't think there is certainly not from the people at Eurovision and certainly not around the city. I've not seen a vast amount of Ukrainian flags, although I've seen a few among fans. I've There's quite a few in the arena. What I have noticed is kind of a very warm support for the Ukrainian act. So whenever they've been around, when, when they performed last night and when they heard the result that they're through to the final last night, a really strong, warm support for them in the arena as well. The mood, I think, is very much one of of celebration. I think it's also worth noting that this is the first Eurovision that has been able to operate broadly without restrictions since the COVID-19 pandemic. And that in itself is a huge relief and celebration for a lot of the fans here. Many people, and I'm I'm one of them, go to many Eurovisions. It's like a circus. We, we tried to work out what the collective noun for Eurovision fans was <laughs> last night. I think we, we settled on a euphoria of Eurovision fans. And, but they descend on a city every year and we've missed that for two years. So in 2020, it was one of the first major events to be cancelled because of a pandemic. And in 2021, whilst Rotterdam were able to put on a show, it was very limited. They could have some audience, but there was none of the outside events, none of the bars, none of the enjoyment that normally goes with Eurovision. So the mood for this Eurovision is very much, oh, we're back and it's a celebration. So it the two are kind of playing together. And in fact, as the mayor was saying, I think he sees both of those things as really important for this Eurovision. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for, for that report and enjoy Saturday night. And thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us next Monday for an interview with Bradley Jardine on how China targets the Uyghur ethnic minority beyond its own borders around the world. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review, and tell your friends. Thanks again to producer Adrian for calling in from Turin. Our producer has been May Robson. Thank you for listening, and until next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.